sometimes to me, technology is like a boogeyman that if you want to like talk about the causes of people failing to consider other minds or treat others as real human beings, it's easy to say, oh, that's social media. For all of the concerns about the threats of technology, um, you should be more concerned about the threats of human beings. Hello, everyone. My name is Stephen Parton, and you're listening to the Feedback Loop by Singularity. This week, our guest is psychologist and professor at Northwestern University, Adam Waits, who specializes in the study of technology, ethics, and how people think about the minds of others. In this episode, we take a wide tour across these many topics as we explore Adam's different areas of interest and focus. This often centers around the notion of demonizing technology in a way that often blinds us to the real source of our societal struggles, which is simply human beings. This leads to discussions around meaning, religion, echo chambers, ethical dilemmas around AI advancement, the differences between in-person and online interactions, and a whole lot more. And so without further ado, let's dive into it. Everyone, please welcome to the feedback loop, Adam Waits. All right, Adam, well, uh, you have your hands in a lot of different subjects, uh, and I think it would be disingenuous for me to try to start anywhere uh, other than just to simply ask you what your research focus is, what you're thinking about these days, and the, and the way that you see the many different topics that you uh, play in. Yeah, I'll actually answer that by going back. Um, so about 19 years ago, I started grad school, and the first thing that I studied with my mentors, John Cassiopo and Nick Epley, was why do people treat non-human things as human-like. So why do people treat animals as human-like? Why do people treat God as human-like? And of course, why do people treat technology as human-like? Why do we anthropomorphize? So my research got started with this question of how social are we? Are we so social that we even treat things like technology as human-like beings? And, you know, given that that was 2004, that was before human-like technology was everywhere in our pockets, in our homes, etc. So whereas the initial work looked at why do we humanize technology, as human-like technology became more prevalent in daily life, that sort of shifted into questions of, well, what are the consequences of humanized technology or technology that appears to behave like a human being? So that's always been a theme of my work, I would say, the psychology of technology. And then, you know, outside of that, I've studied things related to ethics and morality, um, things related to, um, you know, intergroup processes and conflict. And although the main theme of my work has always been, how does technology affect us socially, psychologically, those issues of kind of intergroup processes and ethics have contributed to the work on technology as well. 
Sure. Well, it seems you're speaking of, you know, anthropomorphizing things there. And uh, do you have a good argument for why we do that? Is there a leading theory? <clears throat> for instance, I know of a thing, I believe a thing called the hyperactive agency detector. I don't know if that's a term you're familiar with, but yeah. I've always found that to be an interesting uh, a way we kind of project agency onto things in the world. Is that something similar? Yeah. So that was a theory that we were familiar with when we were doing this initial work. I think um, people like Justin Barrett and uh, others kind of brought that into popularity. And that's, uh, if I recall it correctly, kind of an evolutionary theory that w it would have made sense for us to over impute agency uh, onto the environment for our survival. You know, the classic example is if you see an ambiguous figure that might look like a stick, it's better to treat it as something that might have a mind that might attack us like a poisonous snake rather than just to assume it's something like an inert object. So that's a more evolutionary explanation. Our theory of anthropomorphism, I think, dealt with more proximal explanations. And we basically said there are three people, three reasons why people might anthropomorphize. Um, one is um, the concept of human is just very top of mind for us. We walk around consumed by thoughts of our self all the time. Uh, the self is the prototypical human. And so this concept is just readily available when we need to make sense of the world. Uh, we think human. And of course, we don't do that all the time. But to the extent that something resembles a human or brings the concept human to mind. So, um, you know, a chimpanzee, which looks much more human like than, say, um, a bumblebee, that's going to be more likely to be anthropomorphized simply because it's helping bring this concept of human to the forefront of our mind. So that's one cognitive factor, what we call, uh, well, it's kind of a jargony term. We call that elicited agent knowledge to the extent that a stimulus in the environment elicits the concept human, we're going to humanize it. The two other factors, though, I think are simpler to understand. One, uh, we tend to anthropomorphize things more when we want to make sense of them. So we want to predict, explain, or understand something that we don't understand. We treat it like something we are familiar with. Again, the human form. Um, so that I'll just call that sense-making motivation. And then the third one is uh, to the extent that we're motivated to uh, have social connection. When we feel that social connection with humans is lacking, we might try to find that in other sources by humanizing non-human entities, including technology. So those are kind of the three main reasons. When humans are brought to mind, uh, we anthropomorphize. When we're motivated to make sense of something, we anthropomorphize. And when we're motivated to have social connection, we tend to anthropomorphize more. That idea of something kind of uh, having a, st a stimuli uh, association that makes us think of humans brings to mind kind of social media interactions on there a little bit. And I wonder, have you done any work or seen any research on whether profiles, because we know it represents a human ends up evoking that same response or if there's some distance that's maintained because we think uh, this, this is just text on a screen and not really something that feels very human like. Yeah. I don't know any of uh, work off the top of my head, but I do know that there's work on how people communicate differently over 
text versus over video. This is work by uh, Juliana Schroeder and others. And essentially, we humanize people more to the extent that we see their online profile as human. So, you know, text only goes so far when you have the real live, um, you know, human there on the screen that evokes a human response, which, you know, kind of raises an interesting research question. If you make your avatar on social media more human-like, if you give it a face and a voice and maybe some movement, do people treat you more like a human being online, potentially? Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned in your 2019 book, um, unprecedented access to other humans uh, that technology provides has ironically freed us from engagement of them. Could you unpack that a little bit and maybe expand on how maybe this overwhelming world of agents that we're anthropomorphizing might be affecting us and how that and how ironically we're distancing from them at the same time? You know, what I meant by that is simply the capacity to interact with people at scale uh, through technology all around the world um, has meant that you know, in an instant, we could have a surface level interaction with anyone. I mean, that's what social media does. And I I think even goes beyond surface level interactions, because a lot of online communities, you know, you get a lot of deep connections from that, um, from those. Um, But I think whether it's a cause or just a correlate, um, what that means is those interactions have replaced deep in real life social interactions, which seem to be um, more satiating for social connection. So, you know, uh, you know, contrary to some narratives out there, interacting with people online, it's, it, it's not necessarily like the cause of loneliness. And for many people, it can be the solution to loneliness, especially if, you know, you're part of like a very small community um, or, you know, you want to, connect with people who like the exact same, you know, comic book uh, artist as you do. Or if you are also, you know, if you're someone who's suffering from a rare disease, I mean, wow, does technology bring you uh, closer to people in your exact circumstances, or at least it has the capacity to. But at the end of the day, nothing really replaces in real life interaction. And I think that's where we get some disconnection that interacting uh, in a mediated way through machines means we have more uh, disconnect from other people broadly. Is there something here that has to do with maybe the way theory of mind or other forms of social connection um, psychologically manifest as a result of the in-person? Like, is there something in the body language the, the facial features, maybe oxytocin or something happening at a, a physiological level that might differ in person than it does through something that's like techn- technologically mediated. Yeah, I haven't, you know, checked in on that research in a while, mm-hmm. but I, my sense is that's uh, definitely the case, that there are triggers to theory of mind and, you know, the human voice is one of them, or seeing a human face is another one. And to the extent that those stimuli get degraded online, it's going to be activating less mentalizing, less mental engagement with another person. 
Yeah. Can, can you talk maybe about some of the work you have done in, in this realm then? Maybe something with how we uh, explore other people's minds through technology or, or maybe not? Yeah. So the space that I've worked the most in, you know, there, there are these various terms that all kind of get um, talked about as though they're the same thing. But, you know, theory of mind, people might disagree with, with my definitions on this. Theory of mind, in my view, is really the ability to see or you know, conceptualize another person's mental states, their intentions, their emotions, broadly what we call agency and experience, where agency is kind of the capacity for thinking, planning, intending, um, et cetera. And experience is emotion and feeling. So theory of mind, in my view, is the capacity to perceive that in the first place. Then there's um, mentalizing which is the process of perspective taking, like understanding in particular, does Stephen prefer mushrooms on his pizza or, you know, whatever, porchetta. Um, uh, And then there's mind perception, um, which is really more the question of, does this entity have a mind or not? And it's not as simple as a binary switch. It's, to what extent am I perceiving this entity as having a mind or not? And that's really where my work has been primarily situated. So, um, because that's how we measure anthropomorphism. Basically, we measure anthropomorphism through the extent to which people perceive uh, a non-human entity, like a robot, as having a mind. And so we'll put people in different situations where... Uh, you know, you're going to experience some unpredictability with this robot, or you're going to predict, uh, you're going to experience the robot as behaving in a very predictable manner. When you see the robot as unpredictable, does that increase your tendency to perceive, oh, I think this thing has intentions and consciousness and experience? Um, in terms of my work on mind perception toward other people, um, I guess what might be interesting is that there's any variability at all. You know, we, we might think that when you ask, you know, <laughs> to what extent does this other person have intentions, have feelings, have experience, conscious experiences, everyone sh- should just say 10 out of 10. But, you know, there's some variability there and we show that, you know, people are more willing to perceive mind in their in-group members than their out-group members People are more willing to perceive mind in themselves when they see themselves as ethical versus unethical. And, you know, there's a variety of other places where that research has gone. But kind of that's my space in the whole um, domain of theory of mind, mentalizing, mind perception, perspective taking. I'm sort of in the mind perception corner of that. Yeah, well, you talked there if, about robots, interaction with robots. Uh, mm-hmm. Could you say what you mean by robots? Is this something that's like a Boston Dynamics human-like mm-hmm. machine, or is this something more like ChatGPT? What kind of interactions are taking place when we're talking about that? Yeah, um, so sometimes we're describing or giving people a video of a specific robot, like, you know, Back in the day, we did some studies uh, with this, showing people a video of uh, Clocky. Clocky was this 
um, an alarm clock developed by someone at MIT that um, it looks like an alarm clock and you sit it next to the nightstand and when you press snooze in the morning, it actually like rolls off the table and uh, it has it's mobile and it rolls around the floor and it beeps and sometimes it's something like that. Sometimes we're describing to people an algorithm, so something that's more nameless and faceless. Sometimes we're having people sit in a autonomous car simulator. So I use that term robots quite loosely. Uh, in fact, I've, I've been even I've been using an even looser term lately, which is just automation, which in my view is kind of like a catch-all for um, both physical robots and then artificial intelligence that may manifest in uh, machine learning algorithms and so on and so forth. Um, but, you know, other people have done a better job at breaking down some of the distinctions between how those different types of technology affect us. I haven't done as much of, of that except to say the more human-like something looks, the more we're going to humanize it. Yeah. I mean, do you, does your work suggest, I mean, not even your work, really just your opinion. How, how do you think it's looking in terms of the relationships we build with our machines? Because a lot of people have, you know, concerns about when you talk to Siri or something and you use an aggressive, angry and kind of antisocial approach, that's something that you're kind of like cultivating within yourself. And it says a lot about who you are and how you treat people. Cause we, we kind of, we kind of say, Hey, even though we know that's not a person, the fact that you're socially engaging in that way with that technology tells me that like, I have questions about your ethics, about your morality, about who you are. Is, is there thoughts that you have on kind of how we're exploring that relationship currently? Yeah, it's fun to speculate. I mean, I think about, you know, the other day I saw someone just really yell at their dog. And, you know, it's like that in my view, that tells you something about that person. Um, it's interesting to think about, is this a way to implicitly look at uh, people's personalities? How do they treat these bots? You know, I was just experimenting with ChatGPT earlier today and was thinking, oh, you know, I'm asking it to do something, to summarize something. Should I say, please, you know, does that elicit a different response? What does it say that I don't naturally say, please? Um, you know, I think that's an area that's ripe for ripe for research. I know some people have started to experiment with that um, along the lines of do people treat bots with different genders differently? Um, so, you know, there's a lot there. And I think it does say something about who you are, how you treat uh, non-human entities as well. Well, let's maybe take the uh, inverse of that in a sense. What are, what are some of the ways you're maybe thinking about dehumanizing, uh, you know, I think you talk about the dehumanized worker, uh, in your book specifically. And, uh, you know, maybe this is another angle as we become more technological, as we become more associated with people being represented by technology, are we are taking away some of the humanness of, of people that we interact with? Yeah. You know, I've kind of paused my work on dehumanization, although it's, it's not, ever like in my control about like what I pause or don't pause is like an idea stops being generative for me. I mean, I think 
when I was writing the book, the idea was that the more separated we become from each other, uh, and I mean psychologically separated, the easier it is to dehumanize another person. So the if we think about, I'm sort of taking this as the premise. People tend to think of the self as the prototypical human. So the less you are like me, the prototypical human, the less human you are. And when you have the forces of technology and other things like um, income inequality or um, anything that kind of segments different parts of society, I think what that means is that you get in-groups where everyone feels very self-like and that might even enhance the humanization of people in our social circles, but anyone on the outside of that, it might uh, increase dehumanization. So that's kind of my broad thought on that. Do you think that the technology can change kind of how we engage with consciousness uh, because of that? And by that, I mean, if we are maybe seeing people go into echo, echo chambers uh, of things like social media, if they're creating their news feed, if they're having these self-affirming worlds that, like you said, the prototypical person uh, that they are basically is what they decide to surround themselves with. How does this then affect our conscious ability to mentalize, to engage in theory of mind, to take that perspective of a person who we might consider an other or a member of the out group? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. I, I was just thinking about echo chambers just before we got on this um, call because, you know, one, I've become increasingly skeptical of the idea of echo chambers to begin with. Um, and I'm not the expert on this. I know there's some debate in the field, but there's a lot of recent research that suggests that um, echo chambers are real. But on the other hand, social media that's ostensibly swept us into these echo chambers actually exposes us to a ton of information outside of our echo chambers. And, you know, one school of thought, it's like the people who are most in echo chambers are the people who are not on social media. Um, people you know, actually watching cable news. There's some work by Chris Bale um, on on that. So, you know, I've, I've had this, you know, I'm just kind of thinking through this with you in real time. I've had this back and forth in my mind about maybe this whole idea about echo chambers is overblown, you know, that as much as social media segregates us, also like, you know, it really segregates us is real life. Like the, like maybe the only time I'm really exposed to people who are not like me, um, ideologically is when I'm online, the, you know, that's the, maybe the, or I should say the primary time where I interact with, with those people. Um, then just as, just before we, we recorded this, um, just today, a massive study came out on in in the uh, journal nature which in my view is the best journal around um about it was like studying twenty four thousand people on facebook around the 2020 election and basically showed that yes echo chambers are 
real um, that um, most people kind of consume ideologically consistent uh, content, but it doesn't have much effect on things like ideological extremity or what they call affective polarization. And so I just think about technology, you know, and I'm going back on some of the things that I was thinking four years ago. Sometimes to me, technology is like a boogeyman that if you want to like talk about the causes of people failing to consider other minds or treat others as real human beings, it's easy to say, oh, that's social media. But first of all, like what's behind social media? Human beings. And, and, and two, what if we took social media just out of the equation? You know, who's prompting people to get into echo chambers? What are, you know, who's prompting people to consider those outside of your echo chamber as other? Well, it's human beings. And so I think, you know, the short answer to your question is like, uh, do echo chambers affect the extent to which we're, we, you know, see minds, see human outside of our echo chambers? Probably, but uh, the longer answer is it's complex, and I think there are much other, not uh, I say many more forces at play driving people to see those outside of their immediate networks as less than human or less worthy of humanness. Yeah, well, you know, stepping away then maybe from that boogeyman aspect. Are there some benefits in your mind to the way that current technology is kind of mediating or influencing, maybe amplifying um, positives of social dynamics? Yeah. I never thought that I would be like a technology ap apologist. Um, <laughs> and I should disclose, I'm, I'm you know, doing some work with, with Google right now, doing some consulting work with them on the positive side of trying to, you know, roll out some of their technology responsibly. Um, the, yeah, the major thought I've had is that, and, and I've written about this in a um, forthcoming article uh, with my colleague Moran Cerf for the uh, Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, the argument that we make is that for all of the concerns about the threats of technology, um, you should be more concerned about the threats of human beings. Like everything you want to blame technology for. Like I just gave the example of polarization from social media. You know, when you look at these big statements about what are people concerned about in terms of AI? Well, it's spreading misinformation. It's exacerbating bias. It's you know, uh, breaching um, <laughs> cybersecurity protocols. Humans, in my view, and this is what we write in our article, are the bigger threat in the in those regards. So to the extent that I see technology as a positive, I mean, if we want to say technology broadly, I think technology can help people make better decisions. Um, so like, um, you know, I, I have a colleague, Matt Grow. Um, who has done some work on um, uh, detection of deep fakes. And 
Um, basically, you know, the long story short is like humans alone are um, you know, not totally great at detecting what a deep fake is and, and what isn't a deep fake. And of course, by deep fake, I just mean like, um, you know, a fake video of Vladimir Putin singing uh, Chuck Berry songs or something like that. Um, so um, humans working with AI, this is what Matt's research shows, uh, outperform humans alone in detecting whether a video is a deep fake or not. So I think there, there's a lot of those examples. There are other examples in medical decision-making where humans working with AI can make better decisions, more accurate decisions than, you know, humans on their own. So I, I've, I've actually come around to the point that we're, we're a little too harsh on machines. And I think some of that by some actors is intentional. They would like us to think of technology as the problem rather than humans. And if anything, I'm seeing a lot more promise as to what uh, technology can do. Yeah. Well, in that regard, as we kind of empower, I guess, AI to work with us and trust in it more, what are your thoughts around the ethics of technology in terms of, you know, <laughs> blame or maybe ethical alignment, um, how we treat the AIs that we're working with, any of these topics really just in general? What are you thinking about ethics these days? Yeah, I have, I, it's going to be disappointing. I feel like <laughs> I don't, I don't have anything interesting to say. So I just got finished teaching three weeks of a nine week class broadly about ethics and AI. Mm. And, you know, I'm talking about privacy. I'm talking about algorithmic bias. I'm talking about blame and responsibility and I feel like I'm kind of just saying things that have been said before. Um, and so what I've been doing, I'm, I'm like calling it my listening tour. I'm like, I feel like there, you know, when we talk about ethical risks, the ones that we should be really concerned about haven't been talked about yet. You know, everyone's kind of talking about the same things, risk to privacy, risk to disinformation spreading, risk to exacerbating um, various social biases. Um, and I just feel like that there's something there that we just haven't anticipated. So that's why I'm like, I don't know if I have anything interesting to say that hasn't been said a million times already. And that's, you know, I, I'm like, literally an ethics researcher. I teach two classes on ethics, one specifically on ethics and AI. This should be my wheelhouse, but I'm more in a let's wait and see mode. I'm, I'm, you know, talking to people who work for these companies, like, what are the risks that you're talking about? Because the public, you just kind of hear the same thing in every New York Times article, or it jumps immediately to these things are all gonna kill us. And um, I'm not there yet either. Um, so, so, I, so, so that's why I've been in this kind of meta risk mode, like where, where we just finally wrote this article that said, you know what I think a risk of AI is, is that it's sucking up all of our attention. 
and we're talking about the risks of AI and we're not talking about um, the fact that, hey, do you know that actually human beings are spreading more misinformation than bots are? You know, what's up with that? So that's that's kind of where my head is these days. Well, I want to delve into that last point you made momentarily, but one thing I do want to see if you thought about it at all is the way that technology might force us to answer ethical questions. It, again, I, I, this is definitely a thing that's been said before, and I'll, I'll be a little bit cliche despite your previous response there. But, you know, things like the trolley problem and self-driving cars, there, there's there's an impetus that we have now to kind of answer some of these questions that were great thought experiments in the ethical domain previously, but now have like really pragmatic uh, needs to be answered. And I'm wondering if you see like some tension there or some uh, examples of that taking place. Um, yeah, you know, this is a, interesting one this is an interesting question for me as well where my thinking has really um you know changed over the years like i read this article by um i want to get this person's name right yeah julian defratus and um his, his co-authors um sam anthony andrea sensi and george alvarez and the gist of the paper as i remember was like there's all this work looking at how trolley problems might inform how we program autonomous vehicles. And I think the gist of the article, if I'm remembering it correctly, was like, that's not really how autonomous cars work. It's kind of like not, you know, it's not really how the technology works where it's able to assess whether it's ethical to kill the driver, to spare five pedestrians. But putting that aside, um, yeah, I kind of have just, in response to your question, I just have other questions. Um, and this is something I talk about with my students. It's like, my sense is, so, right, the trolley problem is essentially this question. If a runaway trolley is, you know, screaming down the tracks and it's going to kill five people working on the track with certainty, you know, there's five people working on the track who just can't get out of the way, is it ethical to do something? And there are various versions of this, like flip a switch where instead of the trolley killing those five workers, it kills a guy um, who's just standing on the bridge overhead and you're going to drop him through a trap door and he's going to die, but then you spare the lives of the five workers. And it's like most humans will say, um, no, don't kill the guy on the footbridge. Um, and then there are variations where people are more or less accepting of killing the guy in the footbridge. The gist of it is that people in that um, dilemma don't think like a utilitarian, or some people do, but they don't think like a pure utilitarian, um, which would be to say, oh, yes, one is less than five, so you should always kill one person to save five. That's just doing what's best for the greater good. You know, if you want to like maximize whatever happiness or maximize human life, that's what you should do. Um, yeah. Bringing this back to AI, I think people started studying this dilemma in the context of, well, soon machines 
will be making these decisions. And the, you know, the paradigmatic example is like an autonomous car might have to make this decision. It's going down the road. There are five, let's say, children uh, who are jaywalking and the car has to make a decision. Does it kill the five children or does it swerve and hit a pole that will kill its driver? And, you know, I can't remember what the result results of these studies are, but, you know, these great studies by the moral machine people, Ayad Rawan and Azim Sharif and others have shown that, well, it depends, you know, under like they kind of figured out, well, what are the factors that inform people's decisions? But when you look at what the car companies are actually doing and how they're thinking about this, I think there's, there's just a variety of thoughts. Like I think some companies I might be misspeaking here, but my reading, you know, what you can read in the news is like, well, some companies are just training their cars to do what human drivers do. Like, forget about putting in a moral rule that says always kill one to save five or always, you know, uh, kill five if the five are ducks crossing the road and not people. Is like a lot of companies are just saying, well, what do, how do humans drive? How do humans make that decision? We should train our cars to make the decisions humans would make. I think I read somewhere as well that Mercedes basically was going to implement a rule to their self-driving technology that said, always save the driver, no matter what. That's a different way of looking at it. And then, you know, Tesla probably has different tweaks to their algorithm. Um, we've been able to see some of that in action about you know, both the successes and the failures on that front. Um, and so I think in terms of what AI can do is, is very good at kind of like figuring out, um, I can't remember what company I'm referring to here, is figuring out like, well, what do most people do in that situation? Like that seems to be, when I think about what chat GPT or something is good at is it's not always like great at giving me answers uh, or predicting things, but it can um, consolidate information reasonably well in my experience. And so um, that could be helpful to say, well, what do people typically do? And then on the other hand, we might say, well, we don't want our cars to do what people typically do because there's way too many car accidents right now. Um, so what if we tried something better? And that's where my kind of limited understanding of the technology uh, limits me from saying, well, how would that work? I don't right. Do you, do you ever get too deep into the philosophical waters in this regard and think about consequentialism versus deontology? Like, do we want to program into these machines that actions are bad or do we want them focusing on outcomes? Yeah. You know, I play with the, uh, I think <laughs> uh, that would probably be a better use of my time just to kind of think, think about ideas. I'm too, I mean, one, my work is too filled with just emails and meetings and deciding where do we like yeah, admin. Have, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Where do we put, people in this conference room to like even get into the world of ideas these days. But if I had unlimited time just to think, 
that's what I would want to be spending more time on. I do kind of pose that question. I teach an ethics class to MBA students, and we do talk about this distinction between deontological thinking, you know, this idea that, no, harming someone is just wrong, even if it's for the greater good versus, I guess, yeah, consequentialism. Um, doesn't matter whether, you know, what the action is, whatever saves more lives is the right thing to do. And we have a little bit of a discussion around that. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting because eventually someone has to make the decision. How do we want the machines to think? Do we want to have them think like us? Do we want them to kind of optimize based on what the machines think? Um, do we want to just choose the moral rule? I mean, there, I think, you know, when you get into issues of like people using hiring algorithms and finding out like, oh, my hiring algorithm is biased against women, that's where I think people have stepped in and said, oh, I want to implement a moral rule. And the moral rule is, yeah, don't take like uh, this factor into account when determining who to hire, because we know that that factor for all sorts of strange reasons is correlated with gender and that's going to end up discriminating and we don't want to do that. So, you know, in less life or death circumstances, people feel comfortable making those decisions. And, um, but yeah, when we get into the, like the big existential questions, that's where I wish I just had more time to think about these things. Yeah. Well, speaking of existential, I think you had a recent uh, paper about automation and, and religious declines. And we've been talking yep. about the kind of offline impacts and the, 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 the human side of this. Could, could you talk about that work maybe? And, and maybe some of these ideas about how the stuff taking place offline is, is part of the dialogue here that we often forget? Yeah, the work on religion is interesting because we, you know, it should be published any day now. Um, we basically show that exposure to automation, that is advanced robotics and AI, whether that's you're living in an area where robots have become more commonplace or you start working in a job and you have to interact with AI more, Exposure to AI basically reduces people saying, people's likelihood of saying religion is important to me or belief in God is something that I practice. Um, that's kind of the gist of the findings. And then we've had a harder time explaining why um, that happens. You know, there's a few, I think, not even competing hypotheses, hypotheses that make sense with each other. And we, in the paper, have preliminary evidence for one hypothesis, which is that um, exposure to advanced technology just gives human beings more godlike powers. Like, we can predict the weather now uh, better than oh, ever sorry. before. Um, we can, um, you know know what's happening on the other side of the world better than ever before. We can have like sort sort of um, you know capacities for foresight and um, omnipotence and omnipresence, these things that have traditionally been associated with a higher power, God. And um, as we become more superhuman-like through uh, 
the use of an exposure to this advanced technology that maybe lessens our need to say religion and God are so important. And then, um, you know, I'm kind of like, um, whatever you think about religion, there are some big positives to, to religion psychologically, you know, religion makes, uh, you know, some people would argue, you know, religion is the cause of all the <laughs> wars in the world. I'm not, you know, that person. What I know psychologically is it also gives people a lot of meaning. It also gives people a lot of social connection, gives you a community. And so the interesting thing to think about then is, okay, if automation and AI is reducing the importance that people place on religion, does that have other downstream consequences? Um, that are not so good for people's mental health. Or, you know, maybe there are consequences that are good if you're someone who thinks of religion as, as you know, not a great thing in the world. I'm, I'm sort of like, well, religion does a lot of things. Um, uh, because, you know, then you have to wonder, like, so one thing we know is obviously religion gives people a sense of meaning. If AI is reducing the importance of religion and thereby reducing people's sense of meaning, does AI give people meaning in a different way or does it not satisfy that thing that religion gave, gave us? That's, that's the question. Do you think that some of that might explain why we are seeing some of the negative manifestations on social media? For instance, I mean, you know, Nietzsche, his idea that God is dead. And then we have people like John Verveke from the University of Toronto talking about us being in a meaning crisis. And then we hear your work here about people losing uh, potentially access to meaning through religion as they get exposed to technology. Do you think that maybe some of what is happening here as we kind of place ourselves in that godlike position is that we're starting to maybe use technology in some of these more negative ways? And, and so when we talk about technology being bad, Maybe what we're really talking about is people uh, not having just access to, to meaning-making systems in their life. I yeah, I mean, I, my answer is I would want to know, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. wouldn't that wouldn't that be interesting? Like, say we're in a meaning crisis. I'm, I'm uh -huh. not sure we are, but it would make a lot of sense. You know, we've had a lot of unexplained events happen over the past few years. A lot of like massive surprises, uh, you know, upheaval, uh, geopolitically, uh, COVID, uh, you know, natural disasters, all of those things would tend to, you know, financial shocks would make people, you know, have a crisis of meaning. It would be interesting that rather than technology, which seeks to explain and predict things and make sense of things, rather than giving us meaning, what if that just takes meaning from us further and what if by you know becoming more superhuman because now we can predict the weather and we can know what someone in ukraine is thinking immediately without having to you know travel for weeks to get there or um you know we can uh basically consolidate the teachings of an entire 1000 word book in 15 seconds what if that makes us experience less meaning uh, 
as we become le- more more superhuman like these are the things that are fun to think about that I uh, don't have much time to think about these days. So it's good. Yeah, we're here to speculate a little bit. I mean, as long as you're comfortable with it, so that's okay. I mean, I do wonder if it's an inverted uh, you a little bit in terms of its benefits because I've had a lot of conversations lately with people about this very thing about our, our increasing power, but that also now that things are becoming so uh, possible to automate through things like the large language models that people are losing some of their motivation. Like I know people who want to write books or create paintings and stuff. And I'm like, I kind of don't kind of doesn't feel as meaningful to do those things anymore when I know somebody can type a prompt and it feels like we've already kind of maybe passed that phase of the benefits of our godlike power and are now kind of like, well, shit, now I'm inferior again. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, um, the, no, the, this is a big topic for me because, um, you know, in my book, I also write about how people derive meaning from things that they believe were created by other humans as well. Like even something as simple as like a coffee mug. When you know the mug was created by a human, you value it more than when you learn it was created by a machine. And so as everything becomes more automated, even our ability to create art, do we start devaluing those things? Do we start seeing less meaning in them? And does that, you know, contribute to a meaning crisis? Um, my guess is yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, what I'm taking away from this conversation is we need to get you out of admin and get you playing with some ideas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was, you know, what I thought academia would be. And, uh, uh you know, it, it'll come back, I'm sure. Uh, fair enough. Well, as we come to a, a close here, then, you know, letting your mind free a little bit, what are some of the things that maybe looking forward you're most excited to think about, or maybe, technologies that you think hold great promise or maybe great peril? Like what is your kind of big picture looking forward these days? Um, I think what I've been most interested in is how AI has kind of broader uh, societal effects, like our work on how the, the rise of AI reduces um religiosity around the world i think that's interesting to me because it's like here's a consequence that goes beyond just kind of the immediate implications for oh when i interact with this technology i might be receiving false information or i might be receiving better information or quicker information these kind of more downstream consequences are what i'm more interested in because they feel like a little bit more untapped um and then in terms of a concern something i've been talking about with various people uh, that i would love to study in some form is whether the use of an exposure to ai is making culture more homogenous like i was talking to a guy the other day who was using you know one of these bots for planning a trip to seattle and um, you know, we were having this conversation like, yeah, so now a lot of it's it's kind of out there that, oh, you can use AI or companies are are already using AI to say like, hey, plan me a perfect day in Seattle. But is the use of AI, just like the use of 
um, say Yelp, is that going to drive everyone to the same place in Seattle? Because if AI learns, hey, everyone loves this ice cream shop in Seattle, and then it spits out that answer, you should go to this ice cream shop, and then everyone goes to the ice cream shop, and then you get more information, hey, this seems to be a popular place, are we going to get that everywhere? You know, forget the, the ice cream shop in Seattle, but it's like companies are already, have been for years using algorithms to say, what do people want to watch on Netflix? Okay, we've learned that this was highly streamed, so we should just produce more stuff like that. Um, does the use of AI, given that it is sort of inherently learning from past behavior, just perpetuate that past behavior? And if we're already in a, say, film ecosystem where like everything is a sequel or existing IP or a remake, and then AI is learning what was popular as a film in the past 10 years, are we just going to get increasingly uh, uh, narrow offerings for culture and art and film. So that's beyond the existential stuff. That's my concern. Yeah, the the recycled cliche phenomenon media definitely seems like a thing these days. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Adam, uh, any closing thoughts before we finally let you go, man? Anything at all? Study you need uh, recruits for? Uh, thing you want to put? Uh, the article I think you said you had coming out? Anything at all? Um. Definitely need, um, I, I, I always need help with research in the following way. If anyone has access to a lot of data that I could analyze and give you insights on, that could be a win-win, that'd be great. And if you work for an organization and you'd be willing to let me survey your organization, um, I'd be happy to do that. So uh, data is my my uh, joy. So if, if you can help me get some, that'd be great. And is the, what's the best way for them to contact you in that regard? Um, yeah, uh, just email at, um, I'll just give my Gmail, which is Adam Waits, A-D-A-M-W-A-Y-T-Z at gmail.com. Perfect. All right, Adam, thank you so much for your time, man. All right. Thanks very much.